Psalm 139 is on page 521 and following of your pew Bible, if you'd like to get there. While I talk about the difference between believing life is a gift and believing life is a choice. And I want to suggest to you that you can't have it both ways. It doesn't work that way. Either God has given you all that you have, even down to the soul and the heart and the body that would receive such a thing and the tongue that would acknowledge such a thing. All of it is a gift from God. Or, depending on which model of the false religion you want to choose, choice somewhere has been given to you as a power to decide what you are. I think, therefore, I am, or something like that. Maybe it has to do with random molecules and Mother Nature giving you the power of choice. It doesn't matter. It's it's always the same issue. Life is not a gift when it's a choice. And most people that you meet in the United States today believe life is a choice. This is their religion, whether they know it or not. Some of them are still Christians. Some of them may be with us on Judgment Day singing Alleluia, but in the meantime, they've got leaven in their lives and it's making their lives worse, frankly. To believe that life is a choice is to have a harder life than to believe that life is a gift. Because if everything's given to you, even the stuff that goes wrong really isn't a problem. Especially if you know the solution is the day of resurrection, it's all going to be restored. But if it's all based on your choice, then you got yourself in that problem. You got to get yourself out of that problem. It's a completely different way of walking every single day. And most people that you meet in America, whether they call themselves Christians or not, walk according to the religion of choice. And as a result, there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of conflict and frustration. There's a lot of not gratitude. There's a lot of complaining. Our favorite pastime usually is cynicism, kind of dark humor. Let's laugh at the evil. As opposed to the uplifting of what we do see. That even in a moment as dark as the cross of Jesus Christ, the face of God is active to be good to you. If that happened there at Golgotha, how much more do you think he is not planning to always move all things for your good? Now that you're in him, now that you're washed in him, are we still at the point where you're not sure if you're washed in Jesus? Do I need to come down and tell you to your face you're baptized? Jesus got you, right? So it shouldn't be something we have to reestablish all the time. That's what the author of the Hebrews means. I believe it's in chapter five and six when he says you got to go on to the meat a little bit. He he doesn't mean less Bible. (laughs) Uh, He just means stop having to be proven to you that you're a Christian and know you're a Christian. And from there, knowing you're a Christian, start to live like life's a gift. And then realize the primary religion assaulting you right now to try to get you not to live like life's a gift is the, is the religion of choice. And then if it, if it isn't clear as daylight right now, the religion of choice has a, an emblem. It has a moniker. It has a symbol, a banner, and that is abortion. It, it is the, the sacrament of the worldwide religion of choice. It's important for the spiritual well-being and identity 
of every woman. What's a woman? I don't know. But if they have a baby, they need to be able to decide to kill the baby, lest their life not be as super cool as it could have been. That's the religion's banner. And so to be pro-life really does mean, did you see it in the psalm we just sang a moment ago? It means to hate evil. It means to hate that banner. Okay, this doesn't mean to take up arms in violence, but it does mean to take up arms in prayer against the enemy who comes to steal and kill and destroy, who's decided to set up a shop in our neighborhood to murder the poor. Also that some people somewhere can have a better life. It's a broken thing, this, yeah? And if you don't hear my... Anger is starting to come out. I'm holding it back right now. I got loud enough in the first service. I want to look at the whole text of Psalm 139 in this service. So if you want more fire, go listen to that first sermon. There was some fire there. Uh, But what I want to dig at now is that God's gift of life isn't bad news. It's not some law, don't you dare abort your babies or that's bad. No, no, no. It's more like by aborting the baby, you're missing out on the human. That God made, unique, an individual just like you. We're all different. We're all the same. And every one of us crafted by the living God to be his. That's some good news. That's what a pro-life mind knows. And that's how a pro-life mind lives. Is that the human is of more value than anything else that goes by in this entire life. The plague of our modern world is how little we see each other. We're too busy caring for everything else, saving time and money, they tell us. But we miss each other. So Psalm 139 is about David relishing this humanity that we are in its particular relationship with God. Now, I kind of mentioned this earlier. It's a a kind of a joke. It's kind of not. I mean, as Lutherans, okay, I am not going to begin talking to you about your relationship with Jesus. And and the reason I'm not going to do that is because there's whole groups of Christianity that use that, that very phrase, to mean how you know God loves you other than the Bible says so. And I don't want to do that to you. I want you to know God loves you. You don't need to go seeking for some emotions inside your heart to experience God. That's not, that's not what David's getting at here. But what David will get at here is about, I'm going to say it one time, your relationship with Jesus. You're a human. You have relationships with other people. Jesus is a human. You have a relationship with him. That relationship comes to you by means of his own kingdom, the word and the sacraments of his holy Christian church in the world. That kingdom coming to you, choosing you, awakening you, makes you see that God, who made the whole creation, isn't just some tyrant trickster in the sky, but your father, who's planned this life for your good, including the adventure of it, and has guaranteed you in these words... His Holy Spirit as his own fellowship, his own unity with you to see you through the darkness and into everlasting life. All of that 
David's like, man, this blows my mind. And that's kind of how he's going to start here. All right. So uh, Psalm 139, verse by verse. Here we go. Oh, Lord. Oh, Jesus. You have searched me and known me. Uh, that's going to come back at the end of the psalm. It is also the summary of the entire thing. And what he means is God is God. God knows everything. And that means God knows everything about me. You, God, verse 2, know when I sit down and when I rise up. You're always doing one of those two things, more or less, right? So which place is God not? Oh, he's in all of them. That's the point of the poetry there, right? He adds to it, you discern my thoughts from afar. Uh, God reads your mind. God reads your mind all the time. He knows every single thought. Good ones, bad ones, medium ones. The ones you don't even know you're saying to yourself. You know you repeat 80% of your thoughts every day? You know that? You know, I'm going to make coffee. I need to go to the bathroom. Right? You repeat 80% of your thoughts every day. You don't even hear it. God does. God knows exactly what you're saying to yourself at all times. Uh, this is a tangent from the text, but it's kind of valuable, I think. Uh, guess who doesn't know your thoughts? That everyone wants to think does. The devil. Devil's not in your heart. Devil's not in your soul. Devil's not in your head. Can the devil hear you talk? Mm, now we're getting into some fun conversation. But point being, the devil's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. Now, your flesh, your heart is allied with him. So sometimes by what? Manipulation, lack of spiritual warfare. Uh, does your flesh sometimes speak for the devil? Yep, absolutely does. It'll say the things the devil would have said. But that's never the devil. That's you. It's just you. Uh, uh, and then the Holy Spirit is right there with you. Again, knowing what you're thinking, wanting to plant in your thoughts stronger thoughts like the Word of God, right? And defending you from this devil who doesn't know your every thought. He doesn't. He's not God. Yeah. God knows your every thought. That's the main point we're on here. Verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, right? There's nowhere you can go to get away from God. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. I mean, it, it, what an idea, right? Not, not just does he know my thoughts, but the moment I come to a point where I would have a thought, I'm about to have the thought, he already knows it. He knows it's going to be mine. He knows whether it's good or bad. He has a plan for how to deal with it. <laughs> he he kind of put it there, except for the evil, which he allowed to be there so that he could show that he's stronger than it by replacing it with himself in his own words. Yeah? It's, it's, it's profound here. He knows your words before they come. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. You want some biblical language for what a relationship with God, relationship with Jesus feels like? It's like having God's hand upon you. It can involve some crushing from time to time, a little suffering here and there, some struggle, some tentatio. They use the old Lutheran word for it. Uh, you hem me in behind before you lay your hand upon me. All the bad things that happened to you in your life, God did it. Or he let it happen. He's completely in charge of everything. And if that seems overwhelming to you as an idea, well, then look at verse 6. That's the point. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. 
Like I start to meditate on how I can live as a human being with the willpower that I do have and the ability to make the choices that I do make in a world that is so completely designed and ruled over that there's nothing I do without his permission. How can those things both exist at the same time? They, they, they can't in my mind. It's too wonderful. It's too marvelous an idea, this election of God and uh, the transcendence of his work among us by spirit. The point, if even that didn't make sense to you, is that when you start to ponder how big God is, the answer is your mind should blow. You can't, you can't get there. can't wrap your mind around it. He's going to keep asking the same question in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? And here's a little bit like, why would you want to get away, David? Why do you want to go away from the Holy Spirit of God? Is this, is this like Adam and Eve in the garden hiding? All right. Uh, is this David reckoning with his sin? Is this him asking the question, like, uh, can I have some alone time to like think about God when God's not there? I don't know. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Is this about judgment day? Is this about avoiding the punishment for the thing that you did that you know you deserve to be punished for? I don't know. I'm not sure. But his point is, there's nowhere you can go to get away from God's presence. That's the thrust of it, right? If I ascend to heaven, well, it's duh, you're there, right? That's what you made as your starry host and your great angelic beings to praise you in glory at the throne. So, of course, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's if I die. It's not like when I die, I get away from God. I might get away from the body. I might even get away from the devil. But I don't get away from God. Quite the opposite of that. He's right there to meet you. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. I think this is poetry. Pretty sure it means all poetry. But like he's intentionally using a category that isn't the main category. Like he already talked about heaven and death as categories. He, now he brings up the sea, the, the ocean. Well, okay, what does that mean to the Hebrew mind? It sort of is where the dead are, actually. It's a little bit like Hades. But now he's saying he's going he's gonna to fly over that like a bird. So to me, this just reads as it's flowery. He's trying to say, if I come up with the most crazy idea ever to get away from God, even then, right? Verse 10, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The greatest flight of fancy I can imagine still doesn't escape the presence of God. And so here's another one. I'll get dark with my fantasy. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, right? It's almost like saying, like, if I should embrace the greatness of evil and choose to plague the world with anti-God, well, even there, God would still be present. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Right? The idea is that no evil is even close to being able to hide the good that God is. It corrupts things. It will be purged and cleaned, but it never act actually hides God's goodness. So that even darkness is light to him. How does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. That's the point. Uh, he's fully in charge of all things. And now, the reason why this is dear and dear to the pro-life cause is because of the following verses that 
pile all of this amazingness at what God can do into his creation of life in the womb. And the description of that um, is beautiful. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Verses 13 through 16, again, ultimately marveling in God making a baby. And that that gift isn't going to stay a baby, but it's going to live out more than a book's worth of days. And that all of that God formed too. And David realizes this is not only for everybody, but therefore also for him. And the result of knowing that God did this is praise. It's praise. It's to say hallelujah to God. So the forming of the inward parts start at verse 13 again. Um, that's kind of an interesting one to ponder. Can you feel your spleen if you think about it? You know, let's try for a second. You, know, you find it? God made that. Yeah. What about your, your heartbeat? That might be easier than the spleen, right? Uh, everything that's in you, crafted together. And don't think of your inward parts only as your spleen and your heartbeat. Think of it as your, your soul. Your emotions, your mind, your thought, all of that process that makes you, uh, you know, body, eyes, members, all my senses, reason, you know, the way Luther talks about it, all of that is given to you by God, beginning with him knitting you together in your mother's womb, right? Having two people who aren't each other meet in a miracle that leaves behind a third person weak and frail and yet an everlasting life, whether on Christ's side or against, but God designing this as the great thing that Adam names Eve, Eve for. Her name means life. He names her life because there's going to be more people. It's a, a gift, this womb. I, I don't want to go on a tangent too far, but one of the most amazing evils of our age is how much many women despise their own womb. They don't see it as the gift that it is. Uh, the idea that you could be mocked for being a breeder or a baby maker or something like that is so bizarre. Like to, it's like not liking you because you're saying, you know, I, I don't like myself because I have a right hand and it makes me good at this thing. Like why? You, know, you have this, this gift from God, this body that's made to be life. And, and why do so many young women again they think so lowly of it, so much so that many of them say they're not women these days. Right? It gets really, really weird out there. You start paying attention. Um, all right. So the mother's womb, a valuable, valuable thing, a gift to life, a gift to the church. Uh, so he praises. He realizes that uh, he is in God's presence, that God's hand is upon him. He knows the face of God. And so he praises. And fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it. Verse 15 is a little bit odd. 
uh, this bit about being woven together in the depths of the earth, I suggest to you that is poetry for describing the very same process I just got excited about, the, the weaving together of the life form in the mother's womb that comes to full term and fruition as a human being. Why would David call the mother's womb the depths of the earth? Um, this, I think, has a lot to do with the ancient world using language very differently than we do. So if I were to say I was knit together in the depths of the earth, the modern person would say, okay, so let's get out a drill and dig down and try to find like the little laboratory where you got knit together, because that's got to be there for this to be true. It couldn't be true that a woman's womb is in fact the earth, the whole earth bound down to one place. And so to be in the womb is to be in the depths of the earth. That couldn't be, the modern man will say. He has to have it mean, I go dig somewhere and measure it with my scales. But the poetry, let me suggest to you, the ancient mind, let me suggest to you, sees just the woman's womb as the depths of the earth. They're the same place in God's sight. In God's sight. Right? And this makes sense given that man is taken from the clay and the dust, right? And woman is given to man to help him make more men. Right? So here is the earth as a person moving forward. And all of this is why Adam, when he falls, brings the whole world with him. All of this is why Jesus, when he rises from the dead, brings the whole world with him. In any case, I think that's what you do with this text about the depths of the earth. It's just a poetic way of saying the womb would be our our modern limitation. But again, I, I would suggest to you that it isn't just poet, poetic. Like, no, really, the depths of the earth and the pregnancy of every woman are tied to each other in the design of creation. And not, not necessarily physically. Are you saying there's angels down there running back and forth, Pastor? I don't know. I have no idea. I just believe that they're tied together. Now, because, again, the Hebrew mind thought so. Anyway, a little bit of a tangent there. All right, so... Uh, Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So more of this predestiny idea. And uh, by predestiny, I'm making a play there a little bit. I'll bring you along with me. Lutherans don't talk about destiny and Lutherans don't talk about predestiny. Lutherans talk about predestination. Okay. And I get up and I tell you that you need to know the doctrine of predestination and how it's about your election into Christ, how it's about how the reprobate choose their own damnation. Uh, we can go on. But predestination is built on the word destiny. You can't get around it. It's predestiny. What's the difference between destiny and predestiny? Well, they're pretty close to each other, really, if you think about it. So Lutherans do have a doctrine of destiny. We call it predestination, and we don't mean everything everybody means when they say destiny, because we don't believe in what's called fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that the future is so set that I don't matter. It's so established by God, what word is going to be on my mouth that I don't even have a choice, he's just making me do it. And we don't believe that at all, the Bible doesn't teach that at all. There are religions that do teach that. 
But when we talk about predestination, that is your destiny in Jesus Christ, what we mean is that God has so established his design of all creation that he's going to use whatever you authentically and actually do as his gift to the world for the good of the world in Jesus Christ. That is a destiny every Christian gets to say is mine and claim it. That everything you do the rest of your life is going to be to the glory of Christ because that's the promise of your baptism. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to gain it. It's already yours. It's already yours. Yeah? So that the fact that every one of your days are written in his book is wonderful news. It means he's kind of rigged the playing field. He set up the obstacle course for you, specifically, individually, for you so that you might glorify him through your praise of his name as you live the life that he gives you. It's pretty awesome. Beats video games, hands down, when you start paying attention. Again. Every one of your days is written in Jesus' book, and it ends on the last day with you shouting hallelujah over the fire, right alongside me and everyone else in this room. Deo Valente. Hallelujah. Thank you for remembering that. Yeah? Um, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. There's a shift here, right? Because he, again, he's, he's expounding on the miracle. Nowhere I can go to get away from God. God knows everything inside my head and heart. God made me from the beginning down to my smallest parts. No matter what I do, God is present. How precious to me are your thoughts then, O God. Like if the God who knows everything, plans everything, has got it all under control, knows what you need, isn't it kind of precious if he answers and says, here, I'll tell you what it is? Huh? He sees more clearly than you do. And so David's just saying, wow, you know, it'd be, it'd be great if my relationship with Jesus, let's say, it'd be great if God, when he puts his hand on me, drove me to the word in the spirit scriptures, which gave me confidence to know he was on my side. How precious to me is that moment in my day when I open the Bible and I find a word that I know is from him for me to say. What a gift that is, even if it's nothing more than hallelujah as I spill the coffee. How precious are your thoughts when they become our thoughts? How vast is the sum of them? We, we can't contain them all. Our job is not to dogmatize God and shove him in a scholastic box. Our God is to live in his kingdom. Under his innocence, which is ours. Under his righteousness, which is ours. Huh? Our task is to walk the path that he has left for us to walk while we wait for his return. Verse 18. Again, his thoughts. Can't count them. If I were to count them. Oh, this is an interesting verse at the end then. I awake and I am still with you. All right. So that first part of the verse, if I count your thoughts, they're more than the sand. I mean, that fits everything else he's been saying. God is God. He's really big. I can't understand him. But now why I awake and I am still with you. I think, you know, somewhere around around verse 7, if you think of that as like the starting of a dream, So he has this opening spiel. God is God. He's really big. Here's my dream about trying to escape from God. And I'm going to do everything I can to see what would happen if I escape from God. And in this dream that I have, it ends up with me lying on a seashore, realizing every single thought of God is around me like sand. And the sun is beaming down and he's in charge of everything. And then I snap back to where I actually am. I'm just sitting in my room writing a poem. Oh, God's here too. 
He never left through all of that. Right now, as you sit here in the pew, God is present. How? Well, first, he created you. Second, he baptized you. Third, he's feeding you in a little bit, and you got that last week. His Holy Spirit, therefore, lives inside of you. So he's present as you, not that you're God, but he's with you. He's inhabiting you. He's closer than the shade at your right hand. Yeah, God is present where wherever you go, because you're his body now. Verse 19. Ooh. Skip this part first service. These are the kind of verses people like to skip in the Psalms. They're the mean ones. There they go. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you, that's God, with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. What's a 21st century Christian going to do with that? That's pretty intense. If you look at it, aren't you supposed to like hate the sin, love the sinner? Isn't that what we were taught? I was taught that. It says hate them with complete hatred. That seems weird. And and are we supposed to, again, love our enemies? Doesn't Jesus say love our enemies? So, so how does this hang together is the real question. And right with that is, why did we let it fall away? Why do we all know about this psalm and the psalms like this? Why isn't it just commonplace to us? What happened that made us give up these words? So let me suggest to you that the way to reclaim the words begins by seeing them as Jesus' words, not yours. You pray the psalms because you're a member of the body of Jesus. He is your entryway into any of it and all of it. So when Jesus says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God, He has the right to say that. That's his job as prophet, priest, and king, is to be the mediator of that salvation from the wicked. And if it makes it feel better to start with the wicked being the wicked one, the devil and all his angels, and not some human you have to imagine, well, that's fine. You can start there. In fact, who is the real enemy, the last enemy to be destroyed? The wicked one. It is the devil. It's not not the devil. The problem would be is if you use that slay the wicked to mean only the devil. As opposed to all those sons of the evil one, liars from birth, who have aligned themselves with the devil by means of their false religion. That is their worship and praise of him. And Jesus is asking that they would be put to an end. And he asked this as well during his ministry. There's phrases and lines where he talks about how sick he is of putting up with the people that he's been sent to who don't believe in him. He's just tired of it. He wants it over with. Oh, that you would kill me so I could be done with this stuff. How long do I have to wait? Yeah. So he says stuff like this. But now, so what do you do with it again? Well, maybe there was a time in America where the wicked weren't so evidently around us and on our streets. But Again, uh, a week ago, a West Side Rockford longtime neighbor, worker at Pennings, lived upstairs 
shot to death outside the home, coming home, coming home, was being stolen from, catches the thief, shot, dead. It's wicked. The man who did that was wicked. Does that mean Jesus didn't die for him? No, Jesus died for him. He doesn't believe it, I don't think. So he needs to be confronted about this at the very least. And I certainly can pray that God would stop such men from doing these things in my neighborhood in the future. I should ask that God would stop such men from coming to fruition as men of our community. Slay the wicked. How much more then when there are wicked things like mass murder, Holocaust abortion clinics, all over this country being managed by real human beings who are making lots of money. Should I not ask Jesus to slay them, bring their plans to an end? So I I think we can get there is my point. There is a way for you to learn to pray against your enemies. When you, when you take the time to, to realize your enemy isn't, you know, the guy at work who's a snot sometimes like that's, that's not the enemy that well he is but that's not the enemy you pray this psalm against necessarily and there maybe it is sometimes but your enemies are are real evil men planning real evil things and although america the beautiful has much to commend itself as a place to live it's not free from wicked men not at all Oh, that you would slay the wicked, and then, O oh, men of blood, depart from me. So the prayer here is just first, God, take care of the wicked. Second, I'm going to be seeking to not be around them. I don't want the men of blood at my table. I don't want their influence on my children. I'm not going to listen to their advice. Proverbs 1, verses 10 and following, when the wicked say, come with us, lie in wait for the innocent, do not go with them. That's what that's about. Notice the bloodshed, though, being a primary idea of evil. Shedding of blood is, uh, it means murder. It means innocent blood, someone who shouldn't have been killed. So out of the whole Old Testament, this is like one of the greatest evils. Uh, One of the others would be idolatry. They're like on the same level, right? What's idolatry? The actual worship of the picture. That's what idolatry is, worshiping a picture. So men of blood depart from me. Verse 20. They speak against you. Now he's talking to God again. Why should God slay the wicked? Because they speak against him with malicious intent. They lie. They cheat. They steal. They're not honest. Yeah? Your enemies take your name in vain. Mm. That's, worth, that's worth lots of time thinking about. What does it mean? The second commandment, right? You shall not take the name of Jesus Christ in vain. Well, that would mean to make it a worthless thing is the real idea here. So it's not wrong when something like, let's go back to coffee. It's our perennial example. If coffee were to spill over my shirt, it would not be wrong for me to shout Jesus Christ. It wouldn't be wrong just because I said Jesus Christ. The question is, what did I mean when I said it? Did I say, Jesus Christ, thank you for making me deal with my humility. I have to learn to be a smaller person now. Like Like I could say it like that, or I could be like, you know, Jesus Christ, damn it, what happened? Well, now I've gone from two things, blessing and cursing, which is two different ways to use the name of Jesus, and cursing my coffee. It may not be sin, but it's not wise. Let's just leave it there. What am I doing? Wasting my time cursing coffee. That's my coffee. What have I done with my tongue? That's pretty useless. Um, But again, point being, the name of Jesus is actually here to be used. 
You're supposed to use the name of Jesus in your life. It's weird when you start doing it in public, let me tell you. It kind of, it, it, it fumbles off the mouth a little bit. It's a little harder to say Jesus Christ. And you want to try? I, I can give it to you this week. I found a wonderful verse about a oath that's used in the Old Testament. I believe I found it, oh man, it's in Jeremiah 12, but then Boaz actually says it as well. And, and here is the oath. As Jesus Christ lives, as Jesus Christ lives, you can say that anywhere, anytime. You stub your toe with a hammer, whatever, stub your thumb with a hammer. As Jesus Christ lives, that hurts. It's true. And as long as you are actually then turning to God and saying, like, no, no, I really mean it. He lives. He's my God. It hurts. I'll get through it. It's a prayer. It's actually a prayer, right? As Jesus Christ lives. Um, point of this, right, is that to use Jesus' name but not in vain is something we're supposed to do, but the world won't. The world will use his name vainly. To pray is the warfare we're called to. To pray in the hearing of others for their encouragement is a great vanguard attack of that warfare. Yeah, And it's against those who scoff at God, who laugh at God, or who are too unaware of their own religion to realize that most of the week their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And I really mean it. I live in Rockford. I go to some classes for jiu-jitsu. I've met some other people in other communities. And it's kind of amazing how the curses just roll off the lips. Left and right. I'm not just talking like, like the FU stuff. Right? I'm just talking about like they literally are saying, damn it. Or um, how could this be? Like they're throwing up bitterness about their own life out of their mouth in my hearing all the time. And the issue is like, well, you know, first, what if God answers that question? What if he does answer your curse? I mean, that'd be crazy, all the death and destruction you'd cause. But the second off, how, how sad a life? All you got is complaint all the time? Again, as Jesus Christ lives, the Christian's heart is free to not align with men of blood. It doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle and feel the flesh weighing down upon you. The good you would do, you don't do. The good you don't do, that is what you would do. But in that world, the name of Jesus can be, will be on your lips. Theo Valente. In this sense, right? Taking his name not in vain, it does mean to hate those who hate him. And we, we kind of touched on this and we kind of didn't. What do you do with the word hate? Hate is a powerful word in English. It's also powerful in Hebrew and in Greek, but it doesn't have quite the same connotations. Uh, you remember Jesus says, you know, if you don't hate your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple, right? He, he doesn't really mean like every time I see them, I'm burning and fuming with rage and want them to be destroyed. Like that's kind of American hate, right? Is that? Um, uh, it's more formal here. This is more about like, I'm willing to extend you certain mercies because I love you. But if I hate you, I'm going to give you justice. I'm going to give you exactly what you deserve. I'm not going to disrespect you because you're hating on me. I'm just not going to give you extra respect. So the idea of hate here is not an emotional feeling. It is a distancing of yourself from something for the sake of something else. So to distance yourself from those who hate God, who have distanced themselves from God, 
right? To loathe what they do, to look at what they do, especially to our God, but also to our creation, and, and rightly feel sickened by it. To be able to say, oh, you know, you want to cut parts off of children. That's gross. Right? You want to be able to say that to yourself. And this prayer is, is a way to teach you how, let me say. I hate them with complete hatred. It means if God says it, I believe it. That just settles it. If you say otherwise, I'm just not going with you. And the day I see you cast into hell because you've rejected Jesus Christ, well, I mean, hallelujah, that was you. That was you, right? That, that's the idea here, to hate them with complete hatred. Count them my enemies. If they're God's enemy, they're my enemy. Jesus says, love my enemies, so I'm going to, but I'm still going to say they're my enemy. They're not my friend. And the way I love them is going to be a little different. It's not quite like family. It doesn't mean put my enemy at the seats in my house every night and let him do whatever he wants. No, no, no. To love your enemy is to seek his good in, in the public world, right? To strive to be a person of mercy and a person of peace, to not seek justice at every opportunity. Uh, but nonetheless, an enemy is an enemy. It, let, me, let me ask you this. What, what's the real thing as a Christian you should stop doing? Like, never do this to your enemy. Trust. The Bible never says trust your enemy. It just says love him. Distinguish those things, right? Your enemies are God's enemies. Uh, the, the prayers that are against God's enemies are your prayers against your enemies in Christ. And I encourage you to not be shocked by them, but to ask, how do I live in such a backwards time that I'm shocked by this? And then begin to embrace them, if for no other reason than in the pro-life movement. To pray against those men who would profiteer on the death of the weakest of these among our midst. Uh, if you want to throw one in, I, I think I encouraged this last week maybe, but if you want to take a whole psalm, it'll give you a lot to chew on. You've got two options, Psalm 35 or Psalm 109. Both of them directly against a wicked man. And I would encourage you to pick uh, that bloodthirsty and greedy politician who most comes to mind as needing God to stop him from what he's doing. I don't care which one you pick. They all kind of deserve it a little bit. Huh? And the point being, again, as the body of Christ, we're praying for him to do good in our midst by stopping the enemy. All right. Verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Remember how I said back in verse 1, you can kind of flip there and see it. Uh, o Lord, you have searched me and known me that this would come back. Right? So there it is. Search me and know me. Only instead of uh, me, it's my heart, it says. But remember, we started, you have searched me and known me means there's, there's nothing God doesn't know. We've already established this. He's in charge of everything. So now what's he asking for? Well, maybe there's something more of God, right? And it's not what God doesn't know. It's really beautiful. The prayer, I'll say it before I read it. The prayer is in the knowledge that God knows everything. He knows what's wrong with me that I don't know. And maybe he'll let me know so I can change. That's this prayer here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If I were to amend my little story a moment ago, I would simply say that instead of changing, the prayer is that he would change you. He'd expose the flaw, right? The crack in the glass, the shadow, the dirt under the carpet, the skeletons in the closet that you don't know about. 
holy moly, there's a skeleton in my closet. What do I do now? Jesus, have mercy. As Jesus Christ lives, he showed it to you. That's an answer to the prayer. And now you get to do the Christian work of repenting. It's a prayer for that. It's asking that God would show you a place to repent so that eventually you're only walking according to his word. Now, does this mean perfection? No. Does this mean a righteousness your own? No, no, no. It just means life abundance, which is life trusting that God's word is sufficient, that your destiny sits in his hand. Those hands have the wounds of the cross forever labeling your name there. So whatever is out there next today for you, we're all going to scatter here. We're all going to go completely different directions. We all have completely different lives. But the same God with the same word goes with us all. And that word is light. And that word is salt. That word is blessing. That word is as Jesus Christ lives for us to use. Deo Valente. In the name of Jesus. Amen.